0: Matthew 21, just looking at verse 4, we went through this last week. We see these words, This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. And I pointed out what I think is a, a major theme in Matthew's gospel, that every move that Christ made, every decision that he made, was based on fulfilling the promises made through God's Old Testament prophets and prophetic words that were uttered or even dreams at times that were uttered. Um, And so this is one of the themes that is continuing in our passage today. We'll be looking primarily at the verses you see behind me, verses 23 through 27. So I'm going to go ahead and read those words. If you're using the Pew Bible... You find these words on page 698, Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 through 27. And even though I know there's more children here today, I'm going to go ahead and ask us to stand for the reading of God's Word. Please, if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Holy Word. Matthew 21, verses 23 through 27. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you By what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism. Where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we're afraid of the people, For they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. Then he said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we come before you bowing before you in the name of your son. We come across so many important revelations, so many important truths in your word that are instructive for us and and challenging in in various different ways. Even the, the simple and easy to understand can sometimes be so hard to apply. This is usually because we live in a world that is filled with sin and so much has been done to corrupt what is good. Today as we continue to read and listen and and think through these particular words and the other passages that we'll look at, would you take this text and prove what it really is your very own word and make it precious to us make it as living as it actually is you have told us that your word is sharper than a two-edged sword and that it can pierce deep down into our souls and shape us and work in us pierce us and Convict us and heal us. Would you speak to each and every one of us that is here or that is listening over the airwaves in a special way this morning? Would you cause us to be diligent listeners? To sit at your feet like little children at the feet of a good father who is sovereign, who knows best, and who has proven his love throughout the ages as we sung about this morning. Feed us by your holy word, we ask. Build us up in the most holy faith that has been handed down to us throughout the ages. And help us to understand what it means to to stand firm in the faith We ask also that as we prepare to embark on the VBS starting throughout the rest of this week from tomorrow that we who are involved would also in a special way be strengthened not just by this sermon but by everything that we see through your word this week that we would be strengthened in the faith to stand firm in the midst of a dark world and be like stars that are shining brightly for you. That we would help the children to understand what it means to do the same thing. That some children for the first time would be saved. I pray that not just in VBS, but someone under the sound of my voice this morning would hear more than my voice but would experience the very authoritative And powerful and loving voice of Almighty God would hear your voice through your truth speaking to their hearts and would be saved. And that those of us who are saved at this moment, who are already born anew, who are already believers, that we would be strengthened and built up all the more. I thank you that you are committed to your word in this way. And so we are simply asking you to do what you have already promised to do. We are saying that we want to be part of this mission that your son came to accomplish and has accomplished and is now applying in us and through us for those who believe. I thank you, Lord, for the country that we live in. Not because we're any more special than any country but because we still experience a measure of freedom to gather like this, to worship. And I ask that you would continue to allow us to to have this freedom and to not abuse it, but to make use of it, to not grow slack or lazy because of the lack of opposition that we do face for now. Help us to recognize that we live in the middle of a spiritual warfare. And we need to learn how to stand firm now because things are only going to get harder for us. And so we ask that you keep us faithful to the end. And to that end, at this time I ask that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable to you. Ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. For those of you who perhaps walked in while we were praying, we're in Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 23. And I really have one simple point today. That is in the form of a question. It's the question that the Pharisees asked. Jesus. Look again with me in verse 23. And the question that they asked Jesus there. Remember as I mentioned last week, the order is not exactly as we see see it in this um, portion of scripture. So if you go back to uh, verses 12 through 22 and you flip those two events um, the rest of the gospels show us this. Jesus actually curses the fig tree and then comes into the temple and cleanses the temple by turning over the tables and and saying that the leaders of the day have turned his father's house into a sales pit, a den of thieves, have completely lost sight of what the purpose of the temple was. And after... These accusations and these actions were carried out by Christ. We see in verse 14 of Matthew 21 the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. This was not actually a regular practice for the leaders in the temple, but Jesus, as we will see, has the authority to operate in this way, not just to teach, but to heal. And so we we come down to our text today. We see Jesus there in the temple courts while he was teaching. You see, he's he's a self-appointed rabbi. And I just want to say this in passing. With everything that Jesus did in his earthly ministry, never miss this point. The heart of his ministry was teaching. He was a teacher. He was a preacher. And part of the reason that he had to do this so often and and in such a pointed way and often in a corrective and rebuking manner was because the only people who had access to the word of God had become false shepherds for their own purposes were operating and teaching as they were in a way that Jesus could only respond by turning over tables for example. And so the chief priests, we see in verse 23, they come to him, and the elders or the teachers of the law, they come to him, and they ask this question. And this is the question I want you to keep in the back of your mind By what authority? By what authority? By what authority are you doing these things? Which things? Again, by what authority, Jesus? Are you healing in the temple? By what authority are you teaching in the temple? By what authority are you making these clear corrections of our system that has been in place for quite a significant period of time? And I think this question is very pertinent. In fact, this might be the most relevant question that any of us as Christians could ever wrestle with. I'll just let that hang for a moment. Maybe you're asking, and I hope you're asking, why? Why? And again, I don't want to cut up the Bible and use it for even good purposes. We need to let the Bible direct how we interpret it. But my answer to this question. And my point in in posing this question is directly linked again to our theme in VBS. Okay? Just to be clear, God didn't write the Bible for our VBS or our Sunday school or even any particular sermon. But the purpose of a sermon or a VBS or a Sunday school or anyone who stands with an open Bible is to declare, Thus saith the Lord is to to seek and to search out what the, the main point of the passage is and not primarily how we feel about it or what we think. Sometimes in Bible studies we have these discussions Well, what do you think and what do you think. That can be useful. It can also be very dangerous because God has a point and it is our duty to try and understand what that is. And so behind this question, there's layers of of things that need to be sorted out. Notice first of all who's asking this question. The Pharisees. They're the first in line usually to challenge Jesus. Now I, I don't know if you've looked into the background of God's covenant people and the way the temple system was set up. But basically, there were four groups of Jews, or you could call them sects, S-E-C-T-S, sects, of Jewish people at this time. Four, maybe five, I think. Um, The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and you have a group that um, were known as Zealots. The other one's drawn a blank. But the, the Essenes, they were a group that lived out by the Dead Sea Scroll, like around the Dead Sea areas. They, they lived in the Qumran uh, areas. And, and this is the, the group of people that eventually found the Dead Sea Scrolls much later in history. But here's what we need to understand. God never instituted any of these groups. These were groups that just developed over time. And one of the main problems that existed between Jesus and the Pharisees, and we shouldn't be too quick to judge them, because there's so much of their problem in us today, in all of us. But one of the main issues that Jesus had with the Pharisees, and, and we see it here in this question that they were asking Jesus, one of the main issues that the Pharisees had with Jesus, we can see in... I think it's chapter 15 of Matthew. And look at the first two verses there. Some Pharisees and teachers of the law, see it there again, they came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, why do your disciples break? Notice what it says there. It doesn't say why do they break the Ten Commandments. Why do they break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Okay. So over time, what had happened is, um, and, and by the way, usually the people, some of the people in the Pharisee group, and even some of the people who were following them, they actually had good intentions. Maybe you've heard of the Puritans in church history. This was a group of men who basically said, we recognize at a certain point in time that the Church of England in particular is too much like the Roman Catholic Church, with all the bells and whistles and smoke and mysticism and a long year, thousand year history of a corrupted gospel. And we don't want to be part of this. So they separated. And their goal, whether they stayed in the Church of England or, or separated and made other congregations, was to, for God's honor, have a, a, a pure or a more God-honoring kind of church body. And so the name Puritan was put on them in a bad sort of negative sense. But they were just trying to be biblical. That's really what it came down to. Just like the reformers, if you heard about the Protestant Reformation. Which is, um, by the way, that's the reason we're here today. Uh, Literally. We're not Roman Catholics today. Just in case any of you didn't know this. Because there was something called the Protestant Reformation that took place. And so these Pharisees had some good tendencies, but what happened over time was some traditions that they added to God's law, they started to elevate as if it was part and parcel of being faithful to God. And so in our text today, this question, by what authority are you doing these things, is because they were in positions of authority. This whole question of authority is so important. And as I said, there's layers to this question. The first layer stretches far below all that we know in our history. Just like the foundation of a house, uh, hopefully you don't see the foundation of your house when you wake up on Monday morning to go to work. But that's because it's been built well, that's why our houses still stand, because they have a good foundation. So we need to understand the foundation of authority itself. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when God first spoke to Adam. And then the devil came and spoke to Eve and said, You will not surely die. God just knows that if you eat from this tree and do this one thing that God said not to do, you're going to be more like him than you are now. Isn't that cool? Isn't that amazing? Think about it. And the moment Eve in her heart decided that that's what she wanted to believe, the word of the liar, the deceiver, Satan, versus the word of God, that is when she chose to deny God's rightful authority, which is exercised through His word. And of course, the the text, if you go back to Genesis 3, starting in verse 1 and a few verses down, you'll see. It says, Adam was there. So God created Adam with a position of authority to lead Eve in whatever they were called to do. Go forth and multiply, steward the earth, subdue the earth, exercise dominion over it, but just don't eat from this tree. The moment that their heart said, we choose to believe this other word, It was a usurping of God's authority. So these Pharisees have forgotten that there's really one source of authority. And it is not in these man-made positions. It is in the Word of God. Scripture tells us heaven and earth will pass away. But what will remain forever? His Word will remain forever. This is the unchangeable, ever-consistent Word of God that we open every Sunday morning when we come together in an ever-changing world. The reason that God has ordained that we are a people that are built up in His Word is because this is the only thing that the Spirit uses To shape us according to the nature of the eternal God who first made us in His image, which has now been tarnished by sin. This is the only tool that is used in the hands of the Spirit for those who believe. To remake a people. And there's nowhere else that we are to look. To define who we are as a Christian individually, who we are as a church, how we operate as a church. This is the question we must always ask. By what authority? And you see, by Jesus saying to them at the end there in verse 27, since you don't, quote unquote, since you pretend to not know who John the Baptist was sent by, I won't answer your question. You see there, they ask him, by whose authority? And Jesus, again, I mean, these Pharisees must have been so annoyed with him. He just wouldn't give a straight answer. Jesus replies in verse 24, Okay, um, I will ask you one question. Wait a minute, we just asked it. They must have said, We just asked you a question. I'll ask you one question. If you answer me, in other words, if you give me a straight answer, I'll tell you what authority I'm doing these things by. Where did John's baptism come from? Was it from heaven or from men? You see, as they go to discuss it amongst themselves, notice what they say. If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? That's tantamount to saying, if we say that John came from heaven, then we should be Jesus' followers. Oh, we can't say that. Notice what they're not doing here. They're not saying, what is the ultimate truth before us? They're thinking about their own Positions, their own convenience, their own comforts, their own little titles. They had a type of honor from the people, but it was a false honor. It wasn't a lasting honor that God would give them for sure. So they, they don't want to say from heaven, okay, but if we say from men, ah, we're afraid of the people because all the people believe that John the Baptist was a prophet. So they're stuck in the middle. You know? You ever you ever been in a position where you you just want a straight answer from someone? And you know these kind of people? Maybe you do this sometimes. I know I've probably done it before too more than once. I I'm kind of on both sides of the fence. Well that's not really how things work. Pick a side. You can't live your life straddling the fence like that. The people were right, you see. They understood that John the Baptist was from God. But notice again what is in the heart of the Pharisees. These are people pleasers. They care more about what people think about their perception than what God thinks about them. And church, God help us if we get caught up in that kind of foolishness. Children, you need to learn to care more about what God thinks about you than anyone else. I say this with great caution, even sometimes, I had an interesting discussion with one of you that's here, even sometimes more than what mommy and daddy think. Because mommy and daddy are not perfect right but in case you try to get clever as I said to somebody <coughs> who remained remain nameless I was preaching about serving two masters and I was asked a good question can God be my master if mommy and daddy are my master I said oh okay we got a clever one say well while you're a child the way that you obey God as your master is by obeying your mother and father. Right? That's how you show your love for God. That's how you please God. By submitting to and honoring your father and mother. And even as we grow up, the dynamics of how we honor might change. But we need to learn to recognize the infection of the devil's question that sits even in innocent questions like that that, that that is in all of us we have been infected to try and ask questions all the time even as mature people to look for loopholes that's what these Pharisees want they don't honestly want to honor God and if you are a people pleaser if the, before you make a move forwards or before you decide how something is to be done that the first question is how will it be perceived by men I have one simple biblical application for you. Repent. And seek God's counsel. To have a different type of question. How will this be perceived by God? See, this was a false authority that was in their positions. Ever since the, the authority of God's word was basically disbelieved in Adam and Eve. We have all been born with a nature that does not believe by nature that this is God's authoritative word on everything in life. And believe me, there's far more in this book alone that defines for us everything we need to know about life than we would ever think. And I challenge us this morning To put that to the test by reading every word in this book. Jesus Himself. And here's the great irony. Another theme that another pattern that you see in the Gospel of Matthew are these great paradoxes. Think about the irony of this situation. Who is the one they're asking the question to? By by what authority are you stepping into this temple and doing these things? Well, this is the one who John says in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Is there any more authority than that? No, sir. No, ma'am. This is the one who at the end of this gospel has raised himself and been raised from the dead and stands before his disciples before he ascends into glory and says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so go, all of you, and make disciples of every nation. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And commanding them to observe all. That I have taught you and I am with you always to the end of the age in this mission. And you see, that is our mission. In our homes, in our workplaces, in our churches. We're to be discipling each other. Which happens, I would say, in a unique way. As we commit ourselves to coming together in gatherings like this. Which... If you're visiting today and you don't regularly attend a a church, praise God that you're here. If you'd like to talk to me more about what it means to become a member of this church or to be committed to local churches as a healthy Christian pattern, please talk to me at some point. This is the pattern of the Christian faith. We, We are gathered today on this first day of the week which is called Sunday by most because this is the day that Jesus rose from the dead even our gatherings are set to mark him out and to mark us out as his people we took the Lord's Supper communion last week and we do that as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 so that we proclaim him symbolically until he comes As Brother Langley often says, it's all about Him. It's not about us. Okay? And so, in that same vein, if you have a little tendency to be a people pleaser, ask the Lord to help you put that to death. How do you define yourself in terms of your identity as a Christian? How do you define your Christian faith how do you define the gospel do you share the gospel with others how, how do you describe it are you trying to use words that are biblical there's no set blueprint for how to say this is the gospel but we want to make sure that we are declaring the biblical gospel how do you define yourself as a man or a woman how do you define life as it begins In the conception in a woman's womb. How do you define marriage? How do you operate within marriage? How do you think about divorce? How do you think about everything? By what authority? This is the question that hangs over all of us in a sense. But Jesus doesn't not answer the question. I want you to look at verse 27 they think they're so clever so they answered Jesus alright you've got the good answer now we're not going to be trapped they keep trying to trap Jesus right but they don't want to be trapped but they can't escape Jesus' wisdom he is the embodiment of the wisdom we see in the book of Proverbs so they answered Jesus we don't know then Jesus says to them neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. And he continues to teach. I want you to see something. He doesn't give them a straight answer. And we'll get into the study of these next three parables in a couple of weeks. But the next three parables that we see are actually a, a very clear answer and you see that they even understand some of what he's saying they're, they're, it's, a, it's a broad and specific answer not just to their question but to what is happening at that point in history and before I read the, the parables in closing I just want to read from Matthew chapter 13 In Matthew chapter 13 you can find this on page 691 <clears throat> Jesus starts this this pattern. He he didn't do it all the time, but eventually he starts to teach in parables. And just a word of advice, sometimes you hear people say, "Well, you know Jesus told stories, so it's good to tell stories." There's only one Jesus, and it's important to understand why he told parables. And He actually gives us a direct answer to why He started to do this. So look at verses 10. Go going to start in verse 10 in Matthew 13. The disciples came to Him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he... ...will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled... In other words, basically, in them is being fulfilled right now. The prophecy of Isaiah. You will will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving for this people's heart has become calloused. This is a this is a statement that is being applied to basically the nation of Israel. Remember they're the ones who reject their Messiah, but especially the leaders. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn. And I would believe I would I would heal them. This is, this is talking about belief and unbelief. As a nation, broadly speaking, they had become a, a term that describes this um, type of rejecting the Messiah, this kind of unbelief, is apostate. And notice what he says, verse 16, But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. Then he goes on to give a direct answer to their question about what the parable of the the sower is. But beloved, what is taking place in this point in history is that God Almighty, the one who the temple was built for, is stepping into the midst of this people who have at large rejected Him And he's not just turning over tables. He's turning over an entire system of worship. The temple was supposed to be central, metaphorically and literally central to the people of Israel. Because it represented worship. This is showing us as a picture that as God's people, worship is to be central to our lives. You had the sacrifices representing that we cannot in our guilt go to God. We need the innocent one slaughtered for us this was a picture until Christ died you remember the last thing that happened after he gave up his spirit on the cross the temple veil of the holy and holies the holy of holies was it was way too high for a man to do this let alone from top to bottom but it was torn in two it was torn and the temple was pretty cracked up this was representing that that system had ended in Christ Paul says in Galatians, he is the end of the law for those who believe. Meaning the end of the expression of worship through ceremonial practices, certain dietary practices, and so forth. The Ten Commandments as a moral law still stand. But we have more freedom in a sense, which is not actually easier all the time, but we have more freedom to express our worship to God through that same moral code in Christ and so Jesus is the only one who possesses the authority to stand in the temple and instruct like he's doing here and he actually gives them an answer I'm not going to say much about these parables but I want you to listen to these parables because this is actually a form of an answer that Jesus is giving to these people And each one of them represents a certain group of people. This first one here is the parable of two sons, as most headings put it, in verses 28 through 32. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? So Jesus doesn't give them a direct answer. But now he turns and he starts teaching these parables for all to hear. There's, the, the Pharisees are still there. They're listening. So he asked the question, Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first they answered. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John, that's John the Baptist, John came to you to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. This parable is simply to show that those who are closest to the word of God in this case are far from God. But those who perhaps were looked down by them and probably by a lot of us today as the most sinful people through the grace of repentance come into the kingdom before so many who stand in their own kind of man-made positions and self-righteousness. And so he He moves on. He says, okay, I tell you the truth. This is the case that the prostitutes and the collectors of the taxes are entering the kingdom ahead of you. This is a a parable he's telling about God's grace towards the repentant. Now let's look at the next one in verse 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a, a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized the servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son. He said, But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And this is the answer from the people now. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end. They replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or the head cornerstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. So you see how God even in his wisdom uses their little fear of man problem to wait for the appointed time of the crucifixion. They're too scared to arrest Jesus because they're afraid of the people's perspective of them. Jesus is telling this parable again to show that that the son in the parable is actually him. Many prophets were killed by God's own people, were rejected for the same problem. They, they feared those who were the great nations around them or perhaps who had them captive more than they feared God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The opposite of that is foolishness. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees, they see that Jesus is actually answering their question. He's saying, I'm the one that's been sent. He, he takes Psalm 118 there in verse 42 and applies it the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone the cornerstone which holds the the entire building in place he's he's the one from the old testament since the first gospel promise in genesis 3:15, all the way to the t- tip of revelation that holds all god's people throughout history in place as the house of god he's the one being rejected in this parable that will actually be killed And then he tells them straight, the kingdom is being taken away from you and given to people who will produce its fruit. People who are not any better than you, but people who receive me as their Messiah. Who don't trust in themselves or even any good things they might think they can add to me, but who trust in me and my finished work alone. And then he closes the third parable here in verse First few verses of chapter 22. Jesus spoke to them again in parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention. And went off. One went off to his field and another to his business. The rest seized his servants and mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone that you find. So the servants went out. "...into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the outer darkness." where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited or called, but few are chosen. You see, what's taking place in the midst of Jesus' teaching ministry is that those who are already hard-hearted, and by the way, this is what's taking place right now. Not because of who I am, but because of how God works. Those who are hard-hearted and choosing to be rebels against God's only Son, His only means of salvation, His only means of coming into His family and His kingdom. Can't come through mommy or daddy or granny or auntie. Christ alone. Christ alone. Repenting and believing in His works. But those of us who are hard-hearted and rebellious, through these parables, Jesus is telling, and even through the clear Word of God, they're rejecting the kingdom. They're rejecting the joy of the wedding feast that is to come, that Revelation speaks about. The marriage supper of the Lamb. You ever been to a wedding? You ever seen the joy that takes place in the midst of the, the ceremony and then the, the feast that comes after? Although, of course, not a lot of us don't have the same kind of weddings today. But... Very often that's, that's what would happen. There would be the ceremony and then there would be a feast. Jesus speaks about this in the new heaven and earth. That there's going to be this great feast called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Because God's word will be fulfilled. As He spoke it from the beginning, Christ came and has crushed the head of the serpent on Calvary's cross. If you read Genesis 3.15, you see that promise. And just like this parable tells us, he's been rejected by those same people that he told them they were going to reject him, and they rejected him. And their guilt was on their heads for doing so. But notice the cost of rejecting Christ. In verse 13 there of verse 22 chapter 22 there is coming a judgment we don't know when Christ will return we are all guilty for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and we only deserve one thing his wrath Jesus says this a few times actually in fact he he teaches about hell more than many of us maybe know or would like to agree with. See how he describes the justice of God, the judgment of God? It's a place of darkness, not light, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But the good news is, because Jesus came to this earth, To stand, not just in this temple, having authority to, to do what He was doing there, but to live as a sinless man. The only one who stands outside of the passages like Romans 3 that say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God except Him. For there is no one righteous, not one except Him. He came to live a life that was actually under submission to this authority. This is the greatest paradox of all in this passage. He is the God of all authority, but has chosen to take on flesh to submit to the very authority of God as a human so that he can be sinless and so that we have someone who has both lived for our righteousness and died for our sin. He tasted the cup of God's wrath. He tasted the flavor of what it means to be in a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, of darkness. He, he tasted the pangs and, the, and the, 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 the taste of hell. He drank down that cup to the fullest. And he cried out under the forsakenness of God for the sins of whosoever will believe in him. But more than that, he was raised on the third day. Up from the grave, he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes, over Satan and sin and death. In the name of Jesus, we have the victory. And it is only in him that we have such victory. It is in him that we have the hope of life beyond the, the grave, of, of, of bodies being raised back to life and glorified with our spirits, with our souls that have gone to be with Him after we take our last breath. We have the hope that He will come again and, and, and glorify us like that and make all things new. Because He's proven. He's proven Himself. Himself. He's proven by what authority He stands and does what He does and says what He says. And so I just, I want to close by leaving you with that question. By what authority? By what authority are you you believing things even? By what authority do we believe the things we believe? Have you submitted yourself? Have you humbled yourself to the one who actually humbled himself, even though he is the creator and sustainer of all and, and was the ultimate servant? Have you humbled yourself under his authority? Because Jesus is only a savior to those who he's also the Lord of. And He is the Savior and Lord of all who call upon Him. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And all of us who find ourselves in Him have become part of this family now that we call the church. We see it through little expressions like those of us here this morning. All over the world, a universal church is being built. An unstoppable nation, a holy nation, of priests. So let us not find ourselves at at, at any point in our life asking the question the way the Pharisees did, by what authority? But let us point that question at ourselves. By what authority am I holding my convictions or making these decisions in my life? And then let us make sure that we don't fall into the trap that they did for any reason of being people pleasers. But let us ask God to help us to be a God pleasing church, a God pleasing person in the midst of, believe it or not, a God hating world. See, this world doesn't just hate Christian ideas. The world hates God. That's why Jesus said to his disciples, if they hated me, they will hate you. He said that before he left. Let us not be surprised as we see the increase of that interaction with the world. And let us be diligent to, to be clear that we're being distinct from the world in the way we think about ourselves as Christians, as a church. And let us use that distinction and that conviction as a platform to do the one thing that God has left us here to do. Make disciples. Again, all of us are called to this. And we can do it by His power. By the power of the one who raised Christ from the dead. The Spirit of God alive in us. At home, at work, and in fosters, or wherever you shop. Let us ask God to help us live under His authority. Amen? Amen. And with the lights out, let's close our eyes and bow our heads. Father, we thank You that You are a God who is in ultimate control of all things, even power outages. We thank You for your, Your sovereign control of all things in this world. We thank You that You have... Um, exercise your good authority. And you show us that that you are not only in a position to exercise control, but that you do so for good. You, you, You do so in such a way that blesses others and nothing will stop your hand as God Almighty. May we as your people today look and see the goodness of that. May we stand strong in Christ in a world that is tempting us to doubt Him. It could be something as simple as a power outage. It could be the way that it looks like things are going. We are tempted to think that you are no longer on the throne. But may we be reminded by looking to Christ in His coming in His living, in His dying, in His rising again to see who is in authority and help us to not just see that that is true and that it is good, but to make time in our daily lives to sit under the authority of Your Word, to have Your good and powerful Word wash over our souls and shape us into the kind of people that You would have us to be. We thank You for Your faithfulness. In the way that you've done this so far, and help us to now be continually faithful all the more to you until we see you face to face. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. I'd like to invite